Welcome to this Horizon CIO podcast with me, Mark Chillingworth. This week's CIO podcast is discussing an industry we as individuals, and especially as CIOs, cannot exist without energy. UK energy usage is reported to be 34.8 megawatt hours per capita, which is three tonnes of oil per capita. The UK used 73.1 million metric tonnes of oil in 2017. 25% of this island's energy is imported and the nature of energy production is changing. Wind power produces over 10% of our electricity needs daily. To discuss this changing nature of the energy sector, please welcome my guest, Craig Walker, CIO of the downstream business at Shell. Welcome, Craig. Thank you, Mark. The Anglo-Dutch firm is famous for its logo, its filling stations. Craig, for those who haven't had major dealings with uh, an organisation like Shell, can you describe what the downstream part of the business is and your role there? Uh, yeah, no, uh, no problem at all, Mark. I, I mean, my uh, my my glib answer to that is, of course, it's everything that isn't the upstream, because actually the upstream <laughs> is easier to describe. Um, in the upstream, uh, any of the uh, oil companies uh, basically look for the oil, drill for the oil, and get it out of the ground, and then they hand it over. Some companies describe themselves having a midstream as well. So downstream for me, if you like, in a logical order, starts with trading and supply on into manufacturing, so all our uh, all our refineries, our blending plants, our petrochemicals plants, on into our B2B businesses, which are, for instance, aviation, lubricants, bitumen, uh, uh, marine, and then on, in, on into the retail sites, which, of course, is the bit that, as you said, the general public are more aware of. I can give you a bit of a flavour of the scale of that. As, as, so I'm the global CIO for all of that downstream uh, part of the business. So as a trading uh, company, we're the biggest amongst the uh, multinationals by some way. Yep. Uh, 27 major uh, refineries around the world, um, a similar number of petrochemicals plants and lubricants plants. Um, and to give you a feel of the stats, so we're the biggest lubricant seller in the world. But for example, every 12 seconds somewhere in the world, we finish fueling an aircraft. Wow. 24-7. 450 uh kilometers of road is laid using our bitumen uh, through our retail sites which you said people are more are, are more familiar with 45,000 of them um, globally that's more than McDonald's and Starbucks put together mm. we sell 200 billion liters of fuel through those 30 million customers a day um, some other silly stats uh, 250 million cups of coffee a day go out of those 350 million snacks so I guess we're doing a <laughs> bit to help lubricate the world in, uh, um, in a number of ways but it is a phenomenally large business until yeah. you come into it, you don't kind of get the scale of it. Um, and of course, that's a 24-7 yeah. operation in some 90 countries in the world. And it must be fascinating for Shell as a business to have an upstream business, which, although of considerable scale, yes. compared to the scale of what you're operating is considerably smaller by the sounds of things. Yes, uh, it is um, it is a different business. Um, during my career, I've been lucky enough to work in both. Um, it is a different business, a far more technical business. Um, you know, obviously trying to develop the algorithms uh, for the seismic interpretation for modeling um, reservoirs. There's some incredible stuff going on there with very bright people using yeah. very advanced um, tech to do it, um, all the way from how you find it, look at it, model it, and how you actually have AI driving automated uh, drilling rigs to get the best out of uh, the, you know, the way the bidders are performing, etc. Yeah. So it's a different business to us. And I think um, one of the, the big differences is the customer centricity that comes with being the downstream. Yeah. I think as we came into the early two, uh, 2000s, like a lot of companies, we got obsessed with volume. Mm. Uh, very, very thin margins in the downstream compared to the upstream. Very large volumes, as I uh, just described. And we lost sight of the thing that was starting to happen as we came through the early 2000s, which was the customer's our desires and, and, and role and uh, society's views were changing. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, around 2008, 2009, we had a substantial change in the, um, in the leadership team of the downstream, and we became very customer-focused. And every vertical market went through that, didn't it? Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm blessed I get to see every vertical market, and, yes. and no matter what market it was, I saw that happen. We all had the same epiphany at some point, right? <laughs> we went, ah, this is not going to work. Um, and the customer became king. And I think... As we globalized, uh, so if you think about Shell's heritage, you know, a hundred years of very small companies scattered all over the world. Mm. Yes, yes, some big, some small, but I've been lucky enough, as I said, uh, to work all over the world for Shell. And in the early 80s, I spent two years in Saudi and then four in Dubai. When I went there then, people forget there was no email. You could barely phone back to London because of expense and the quality of the lines. Yeah, yeah. So you were sent there to make it happen. 
And so we had this proliferation of companies with different ways of working, different processes, and by then different IT systems. So there I am, 26 years old, told to go and do IT in Dubai and thinking, well, how do I do that? <laughs> bringing in email, bringing in things like Oracle, which these days, yeah, you don't even think about it. But back then, it was DEX all in one system that I implemented. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, there was no plug and play. <laughs> no. Oh, God, no. And, and you were out on your own doing it. Yeah. But as we came to the 2000s, you realized that is not a sustainable model. And you've got to globalize because the, the, the customers that you're dealing with are starting to globalize themselves. And we weren't efficient. We were, we were, we were competing with, with each other in parts of the world. I mean, it was, it was crazy. But as you go through that journey, we lost sight of the customer. We got obsessed with global standards. How do we run this the most efficiently we possibly can? Of course, the pendulum then starts to swing back when you realize we've lost something of our heritage, which was being known as a member of the community and somebody special who was trying to do more than just be an oil company in that country. Was there a, a, an element of luck, though, that having done that standardization globally, that does help with you in the customer journey and all those sort of great yes, things? Yes, it does. And I think you hear a lot of companies now talk about global or whatever it may be. Yeah. I I am a global organization. You have the backing of all the resources and skills, but actually it's very different to market whatever it might be in Thailand, to Indonesia, to the US, to Germany, to the UK, to, to sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you've got to be aware of, and it's not only the regulations these days, which of course are becoming a more complex issue, yeah. but it's just the way the customer desires to be treated and the segmentation of that market. Yeah. And when we were preparing for this podcast, we talked about Shell talks internally and externally as an energy company and not Indeed. as an oil major. How is that changing and why is that changing? Well, I think it's a, I mean, I think it's an incredible journey that our new CEO, well, uh, uh, Ben Van Bien, you could always not that new a CEO, but, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, four years has kind of taken us on. Um, when I joined the company, uh, we were very much an oil company. Uh, this was 1981. Uh, we had six rivals, the so-called Seven Sisters, if, um, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you remember that analogy. Now, of course, the world has changed uh, tremendously. And I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be in Shell. Around 2008, in truth, we you could argue we turned into a gas company because we started producing more gas mm. than oil and people didn't notice that. And then, of course, we uh, made the purchase of uh, BG. Yeah. But you've just got to look at our corporate um, strategy now. And we've stated that our purpose is we power progress together by providing more and cleaner energy solutions with a hashtag of make the future. And I think those words are very interesting. It's about you've got to do it together. Back in those days, you you went alone. Now you know that whatever you do, it's with an ecosystem of other players, be that, uh, be that NGOs, be that governments, be that just other public who have an opinion on how a company should operate, etc. And will that be other companies who are also energy firms or Absolute, oil heritage firms? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, you uh, look in many parts of our our world, particularly in the upstream, where the cost of it um, of going after resources can be very expensive, yeah. we we are often aligned with those people who people would see as our rivals. That yeah. might be a Petronas or an ExxonMobil or a BP or whatever, right? Yeah. You you bring your tech uh, your uh, your technology, your ideas, your funds together in order to get that hydrocarbon uh, yeah. reserve out. But I think what's interesting now is the technology has moved to a point where we can do things you know solar panels yes and wind and all this it was all there but it wasn't becoming mainstream fast enough no. and as an oil company or as indeed now as an energy company one can only go with where the public wants to go to if the public wants to buy petrol you need to provide petrol it doesn't matter how many um, hydrogen sites we build as you know we've we've uh, mm. we're building those in the UK how many electric posts you put down if there isn't a customer to come to it it's that it's that catch 22 yeah, yeah. but we believe right now with the experience we've got and the knowledge we've got of how to um, generate energy if you like move that energy store that energy and then we have the infrastructure to uh, to uh, deliver it to the end uh, customer now is the right time to step in and be part of creating a sustainable future that is a greener way of operating so not only are we trying to reduce the amount of our own carbon footprint but we're now trying to deliver more and more of the type of energy that the public is wanting to have there's two, in, two interesting points in, in, in what you've just said. One is there's the interesting correlation between the automotive industry, which of course is yes. in, independent, you know, so crucial to you, yes. is how they've actually all yes. come together. Yes. And, and, you know, you, the Volkswagen Audi group is the, yeah. the obvious one yes, of, yes, of, of yes, how many plat yes. five platforms for everything. Uh, and then interesting in the energy sector, you know, people are, now do want this this green revolution. Actually, 
you guys have to be part of that because you've got the infrastructure. You've done it before in a, one form Absolutely. of fuel and you can move to the new. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yes. And I actually believe we have a very important role to play because I think when you look at the way companies like ourselves work, and particularly like with the strategy that we've, um, uh, the, uh, the uh, scenario planning that we do, we have the resource, and I believe we have the skills and the ability, as do other big companies, to help deliver the future that this planet so badly needs. Mm. So I'm very proud that our CEO signed up to the Paris Accord. I think that's a very important step, and it makes me proud to be part of a company that genuinely wants to create a sustainable future. Mm. And I don't think anyone can go it alone. You know, government can't... No. I mean, they can help by setting the right policies and the right regulations to encourage both the public and the companies to move that way. But I really think we need to be a leader in that. We won't be in business in 20, 30, 40 years' time if we don't become an energy company. And I think all through the life of Shell, the 100-odd the, the years, we've moved towards trying to deliver what the public, what society wants. Um, if you think about the, the various revolutions that have gone on. And now we're at a fantastic tipping point where the components are becoming cheap enough that you can do it. So the electric motors for cars, uh, the solar panels, the wind, the tidal, whatever it might be, is getting to a price point where it is competitive with other forms of energy. Yeah. It's just, unfortunately, petrol and gas are, are a very easy uh, way of storing quite large potential energy and moving it around. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we've got to change that infrastructure. Yeah, I don't know whether you've read recently in Leeds uh, where they're looking at can they use hydrogen as an alternative fuel right. to natural gas. Now, that's quite fascinating because I actually think hydrogen is, is almost a forgotten fuel because I yeah. think the public has a little bit of a it's explosive, you know, we, you know, we <laughs> exactly. can't remember the exactly. Hindenburg, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, where actually uh, there's a new catalyst apparently that's just been uh, developed where you can take seawater and more easily, more easily uh, convert that. And it's like our own stations. I don't have to transport the hydrogen. If I'm in a warm enough or sunny enough country, solar panels on the roof, if I've got water at the station, I can generate hydrogen. Mm. And it's a great way when the wind's not blowing, if you like, when the wind is blowing, convert it to hydrogen, store it, when the wind doesn't blow, use that hydrogen to fire up a gas turbine yeah. to generate electricity. So I think it's a fuel that's going to play more yeah. and more. I met a guy once who'd built a system that was the same size as a telephone exchange box, the little green box yeah. at the end of your street, that could produce enough hydrogen to power that street exactly. Uh, using exactly the technology exactly. you've just described and me. And as, as a business leader, as a technologist, it must be quite exciting because you're living through and taking part in a change in much the same way as the technology industry yes. changed. And we have to doff our cap to Microsoft. They, oh, absolutely. An incredible change to become a cloud service provider. Yes, and as you say, you're you're going through a very similar journey yeah. to what Microsoft have been through. Yeah, I, I, and and I think you hit on it there, right? For a hundred years, we've sold product, uh, and we're very proud of our brand. And in many many parts of the world, we're seen as the brand leader, and people see Shell as a quality product they trust. But as we all know from our everyday lives, product isn't good enough anymore. Mm. The member of the public wants the service that goes with it. Now, that's a real challenge for a company that produces something that essentially you burn or you stick in another machine and lubricate yeah. it, right? Um, so how do we take 100 years of heritage and product and turn that into a service that means people will come back to me? Because I genuinely believe, just as a, you know, as a Microsoft or whatever, that selling it once and hoping someone comes back to buy it again model is not a sustainable model. No. You have to have a reason why they will come to me. Um, and that's a big challenge. And I think as a CIO, helping the business think through how technology can make that a reality is, is the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity that I have. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of companies these days, this really is IT's time. There's there's magnificent tech out there. I can do a lot of very clever things. Yeah, I think even if you go back five years, most of us, we had great ideas, but we couldn't actually turn them into reality at a price that worked or, or the delivery of the service wasn't fast enough or the connectivity wasn't there. Yeah. Now it is. We're limited not by the technology now, but by people's, by people's imaginations. And, it's and great people are pivoting that model. And it's a great time for the community as yourself, as Andrew Jordan at Carlson Wagon Lee, David Cooper at Mitai, who've got a technology product uh, yes. element to their role as yes. well as still to run and operate because that will never Absolutely. go away and, and so it's a great opportunity for the community yeah it's and it brings a lot of other challenges with it which i'm sure we'll get onto. but yeah. um <laughs> uh it is a fascinating time because i'm not only working in an industry that is revolutionizing itself um in its image and the way it wants to work uh but also with a technology set 
that is moving so fast, um, getting that out there and deploying it at speed uh, and capturing the public's sort of imagination, etc., to want to come to me because I offer a service others don't is, is I think, key to our... Yeah longevity on the downstream side <laughs> yes and and we've talked about a number of times about uh, the, uh, the consumer uh, need to be consumer focused let's focus briefly on the automotive side of okay. your business is consumer behavior really beginning to disrupt the market as as ride and, and car sharing increases are you seeing an impact yeah. and is that what's driving the change yeah uh, so if you look at the retail side of our um of our of our business yeah i mean i live here in central london Outside of my apartment block, there are two zip cars. Yeah, yeah I, I, for people who are uh, familiar with that, it costs eight pounds a month to belong and five pounds, six pounds an hour to rent one. Yeah, I don't have to insure it. I don't have to um, pay the congestion charge. I don't have to fuel it. Yeah. All there is is a fuel card in there that says, "Hey, please, as a courtesy to the next person, don't bring it back less than a quarter of a tank full." Where's Shell in that? If I didn't work for Shell, do I care if I put in? The, the fuel that makes that car perform best, the worst fuel, the most expensive fuel, the cheapest fuel. It's not my car. It's not my money. I don't care. Yeah. I'm going to go to where is most convenient. So here I come back to the service, right? How do I take all this, um, all this technology and commercialize it in a way that even though you have any choice you want and it's not your asset, you're still going to want to come to me? Because it's not just that shared ride bit. It's the shared asset bit. It's when people start to say, hey, let's buy this car together. Or if you take, say, Bentley in California, you buy a Bentley there. They say, hey, it's always ready for you to drive. We'll fuel it. We'll lubricate it. We'll wash it. It's the best driving performance. Always ready for you. Where does Shell play? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, if I work for Shell and I'm lucky enough to have a Bentley, I go, hey, I'd like you to put Shell fuel in it, please. They go, no, no, no. You don't need Shell fuel. Now, think about the same problem with rotating equipment. You run a factory, you have a bunch of gas turbines or whatever it might be, you're buying lubricant from Shell, and then along comes the provider of those pieces of kit and says, hey, um, don't bother about buying them anymore. You know, the classic power by the hour will charge you whenever you switch it on. Whose data is it, by the way, off all those sensors? Mm. Yours? Just is as Rolls-Royce. Yes, is it Rolls-Royce's? Can I get a slice of it as Shell? Can I actually be able to say, ah, well, Mark, um, you know, I lubricate a lot of these machines. I actually think um, I can give you a better blend for that machine. Or a Rolls-Royce going to say, no, no, don't give it to them because you don't have to worry about that anymore. We'll make sure it's always up and running. That's part of the contract with us. Mm. Again, I get pushed out and I become a commodity to a company that's providing you the service. So the threat is not just the automotive industry. If you think about the Internet of Things and what a supplier can do with that, then how does it work? So I come back to the ecosystem. Yeah, I was with my... Um, counterpart from Jaguar Land Rover the other week. And you may know that if you have a Jaguar, your Shell mobile app will actually run on the dashboard of the Jaguar. Right. So I can pay off the dashboard and all these um, all these cool things. Yeah, yeah. But this is where you have to get an ecosystem together. Mm. I, I can't do it myself anymore because you want a service. If you're a mother with kids in the back, maybe you don't want to get out the car. Yeah. So you want to just have someone fuel it for you, someone pay for it. If you look at our mobile app, for example, if you're a disabled person, you're able to call ahead on that app. It'll find you the station, alert the station you're on the way, and someone will be there to fuel it for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a service. And it's those service elements, isn't it? it was in this podcast, uh, a month or two back, we had Phil Jordan, the new group CIO at Sainsbury's, talking about actually the butcher, the baker, the, yep. the fishmonger, and that, that will come back to the fore in Sainsbury's. And actually, you, you may well have a digital relationship with your yes. preferred baker or your preferred yes. fishmonger, uh, who will do you know yeah. the, the equivalence to what you're saying. But actually, I don't want to get out of my car and fill it up, because yeah. it's, it's a horrible day and the kids are playing up. Likewise, you might want to say, I want a fillet of absolutely of, of cod today and he knows how you like it cut yeah 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 so so i think um that whole piece we've had yeah i think most big companies let's face it have had to reinvent themselves many many times over the year um uh because you get to about 100 years old and that's kind of the classic time it's when companies start to fail yeah yeah so many of us have had to reinvent ourselves many times but here is a completely different challenge because we're trying to create a service and that is, an, I can't stick sensors in the fuel. You burn it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like I can sell you a fridge that tells you when it needs maintenance or yeah. you've run out of beer or whatever. Not that I'm sure I want my fridge talking to me, but, <laughs> but I've got to be more inventive. I've got to build a service around it and I've got to work with a car manufacturer or a whatever in order to create something that you want and desire and makes your life. Because it's all about making your life 
more frictionless. Yeah. Now, autonomous cars is a completely another story, <laughs> right? Because when are they going to turn up at my retail site? Yeah. Three in the morning? I mean, they're not going to come out during the day when it's busy. Are my sites open at three in the morning? Is someone going to be there to fuel them? I mean, we've tried automated fueling off robotics. That is really hard, right? Yeah. Uh, electricity might be easier. It's not easy to work out what the difference it's going to make to your logistics, your opening hours, your cost of operation. It is whole new business models, isn't it? Yeah. Because you are at some advantage in that around fuels, whether it be uh, you know the airlines hedging their fuel buying sure. or, or us as car drivers, there's always been an element of poor loyalty, hasn't there? That you might go, to, I mean, I go to my local petrol station when I'm fueling up in yep. the town I live in, but when I'm out on the road, if I'm on a family trip or, or, or business, it's, it's the loyalty's gone, isn't I it? I can't believe you're saying this to me, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you must see that, you know, consumers are not particularly loyal in, in fuel. Well, I think, I think, and I'm not an expert on this, right? And I guess one of my marketing people could answer this better. <laughs> um, why are loyalty schemes prominent? Because you want to give people a reason to come back. But I think, again, it comes back to that service element, right? There's there's interest, obviously. There's many studies on why do people come to certain sites. And there's obvious ones. Clean toilets, Wi-Fi. Women prefer brightly lit sites because it feels more secure. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons in the layout and the, and the services you offer at a site why somebody, particularly on a long journey, might say, you know what, I prefer to stop at Shell because I know they have a reputation for always keeping a good toilet or a good washroom. Yeah. Um, maybe it's the variety of snacks that we carry. You know, non-fuels retailing is a big part of most uh, petrol retailers' businesses. Yeah. Are there reasons why you would want to come in? Of course, this is where you get into the whole GDPR piece and how intrusive people want you to be on their lives. But if I recognize you the moment you come onto my station because I pick up your mobile phone, I know it's Mark, I know it's 70 degrees today, I last saw him at a station in London, I know he's driven 200 miles, I see you come on and I go, hey Mark, fantastic to see you, uh, let me offer you a half price cold coat because I know you love that and it's a hot day. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, can I reward you in ways that make you feel valued? People like to feel people yeah. like to feel valued. But I'm not an expert on this, yeah. right? <laughs> but it's a fascinating world, really. Looking and it's not driven just by price. No. You know, we're the biggest seller of premium fuel in our V Power piece of anybody in the world. Now, why is that? That's because people perceive the quality of that fuel. But as you say, that's not always good enough. They want something more. Yeah. Looking at the wider business, we touched on how, uh, as the move to, to m multiple energy sources will happen, you, you're going to be part of that move. Yeah. How, Shell acquired first utility yes, last month. Yes. You've got a German retail under the Shell brand, I believe, in Germany. Yeah. Uh, we bought first um, a new mobility as well. Yeah. The 80,000 charging posts across right. Europe. Yeah. Uh, so, so the business is growing. It's diversifying. Yeah. Yeah. How much of your existing business processes are interchangeable and allowing that diversification? I think there's a lot of interchangeability. If you think our basic skill is in acquiring energy, storing it, moving it to the end uh, to the end consumer, the skill is there. What you may not also know about our our uh, our uh, trading division is we don't just trade crude oil as people might think. We trade products as well, but we also trade gas and we trade energy twenty seven you know, twenty four seven on a number of grids around the world, both in Europe and the US. Right. Right. So we have a skill in doing that and a skill in how to hedge that and move that and 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 um, aggregate that to, to various industrial customers. What this is really doing is getting us back into the home market again. And with First Utility, we've acquired about 700,000 customers in the UK. I think the real success of this is how you integrate that into our other businesses. So again, if I take you or me as example, if I am a, a, a first uh, utility person, I'm getting my electricity from Shell. If I spot you come onto one of my sites, I can instantly give you the same deal as you've got at home or perhaps a better deal. I know you, I already have a relationship to you. Perhaps that's a way to build better loyalty. Because hmm. of course, the interesting thing is, I guess, back to our earlier conversation, I don't have better electricity. You know, I don't have a V power of electrons. <laughs> I can't say, hey, my, my electrons spin better. Your car will perform better. It doesn't exist. Uh, you're a bit the same with hydrogen. So how do I bring together a set of services that make Shell, if you like, part of your life, part of your lifestyle choice? And we make it more frictionless for you to buy. You turn up at my station, you haven't got to pay because it'll be on your monthly bill. I know it's you. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of synergy and broadening to a wider energy portfolio 
gives us quite a lot of opportunity to approach people and offer additional services in different ways. And I think Shell has always done this to some extent, but we were a bit haphazard in the way we were looking at alternative energy. So we set up a new group, um, which is Integrated Gas and New Energies, and they are bringing together um, a different portfolio of products and services that I think not only could stand alone, but actually if they were integrated into other parts of the business, uh, you get a more powerful offering. It's quite similar to what retail has done with financial services, health services, and, and what have you. Again, slightly haphazard, but some have yes. done it better than others. <laughs> I think we're more energy-focused, but yeah. but you could see us tying up with other people in that ilk in order to provide something about a shared ride or a shared asset where what we I mean bring is, it together for you. What I mean is how they've understood the, the total needs yeah. of the customer and brought... Yes. If you're buying yes. a sofa, do you want finance with that? And, and, and yes, yes, yes. You touched on it briefly there. Presumably you've had to change your team, you've had to change the way technology operates because the way the organisation is operating, you're diversifying, you're, yeah. as you say, you're, 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 you're creating this single yes, customer yes. view. Tell me about how that change is being led. Well, I think um, I came into the role four years ago uh, this summer, and, and actually the new uh, director of Downstream, John Abbott, turned up about three months before me. And we sat down and had a conversation going into that. And I knew I was inheriting an organisation that was not in the best of shape. Um, and there were things I could do to put it right. I, I did the classic of sitting down. I, I insisted that I would pick a new team. And I did. It's still along the lines of the major. Um, so so I have a head of trading and supply, uh, manufacturing, global commercial retail, and then someone who looks after all our mergers, acquisitions and, uh, and divestments, plus our ERP system, which cuts across the whole thing. And then a head of strategy, IRM operations. Yeah, the kind of classic view, I guess. Yeah. But we had to start thinking in a different way. When I took over, we were slow. We were inefficient. We'd lost sight of why we were there. Right. We were doing IT. Yeah, that, that isn't going to help anyone. No. Uh, well, that's a little unfair, but it's not really going to help anyone. So uh, we sat down, covered a board in, hey, why doesn't this work that well? And then came, cut it down to some themes and three themes came out. And these have stayed with me. And I've said they will stay with me until the day I leave or they fire me, right? I mean, these are absolutely the mantra. Number one is commerciality. I don't care if you're me or the guy who comes to fix my PC. And I'm not saying he or she's the lowest of the low. I'm saying... That's probably the span of roles, right? And actually, the person who fixes my PC could be a lot more important than I am most of the time. <laughs> um, but if you don't understand how we add value to a bower of hydrocarbon or a unit of energy as it comes down that supply chain, then what are you doing? Mm. I, I mean, how do you prioritize your day? How do you make decisions? How do you understand what pressure the business is under? You have to understand to a basic level and sometimes to a very advanced level how that business really operates. So we swung this around and said, you know what, we're going to take a lot more notice of disruptive business models, what's going on outside in the market, and we're going to understand our own business. And I don't care who you are, you have to understand the business you work for. The second one is one team. I was, we were victims. Anything that went wrong, it wasn't our fault, right? Yeah. Oh my God, that was because HR did or finance did or the business did not. Yeah, okay, fine. We're one team. Yeah. And one team to me is everything. I, yeah. I played a lot of sports in my life and I know the once or twice in my life I've been on a truly high-performing team was when people got it. Mm. Here's the goal. Here's your role. Trust your colleagues. Go after that goal. And the third one then, not, uh, not unsurprisingly, is kind of the business outcome, the business value. What is it we're trying to achieve? And, and coming in as a new CIO, you had a lot of people come to my door and you know, want to introduce themselves. Hey, Craig, I work on such and such a project. You know what? It's on time and on budget. I stopped that flow of people because <laughs> I said, OK, that's brilliant. But what's it, what's it going to make? Or if it's gone live, has it, has it delivered to the bottom line what they said? And I'll get people going, well, Craig, that's not my problem. I mean, I'm IT. You know, I've done... No, no, no. Someone's just trusted you with a gazillion dollars to build this, and you don't know whether it's worked? I mean, how can you be a part of their team and part of their success or failure if you don't know if it's worked? You're not part of one team. No, right? And you certainly don't have a sense of, uh, of uh, commercial awareness. How have you communicated that to the business? I mean, I mean, I, mean, I, right. I love those stories. Uh, Daryl Stein, when he was CIO at Marks and Spencer's, always did a very similar journey as yourself, and uh, and he described it to me as everything had to boil down to red V-neck jumpers, whatever it was. As you say, whether you're the okay. chap, chap yeah. fixing a device yeah. or, or, or yeah. one of the strategies, right? you had to explain how many more red V-neck jumpers absolutely I can shift. Absolutely. Well, I think it took time. So I also inherited. I don't want to talk numbers today, but I also inherited um, a a department that was spending billions of dollars, and I. Looked Looked at that and went, this is madness. 
I also went to John and I said, you know, I'm going to get out. Um, I think I said I was going to get out, let's say, 20% of that uh, within three years. And he was pleased about that. We actually got that 20% out in in 18 months. Wow. I then went on to offer him twice that amount and said, oh, I'll, I'll get this down by 30 or 40% by 2017. Now, it was 2017 last year. We missed by a smidgen, a smidgen. Uh, but it was immaterial because within that first year, we got the credibility that we'd come in stood up in front of him and said, this is inefficient. It's not working well. There are things we can do. I've already sat down with a couple of my sort of closest confidence. We can do this. Back of a fag packet, yes, but the numbers are there. We can do it. That started to mean the conversation changed. So then when I went into to the exec team, we didn't talk about cost. Yeah, of course, you show a, you're an IT guy. you got to put up one graph on cost. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> that money came out. Our operational stats improved. So we were more reliable, we were more secure, better operational uptime, and the cost of our running projects went down and they were going in faster and better. Not as not as good as we'd like, but it's better. The conversation changed. It started to be, okay, Craig, tell us about this, this digital word that's going on now. What should we be doing about that? Tell us about where you see disruptive business. So suddenly, the quality of conversation changed. Yeah. What I needed was for my leadership team to achieve the same. And for the first time at the uh, during last year, every one of my leadership team now sits on the executive vice president's business team. Why? Because they're going in there with credibility and talking business first. You know, I would I would say to my guys, why is the CFO on the leadership team? I don't think it's because they can't add up numbers, guys. Right? It's because they go, well, I hope it isn't. They <laughs> they go in. And because of the numbers, they bring an understanding of how business is operating and what and where weaknesses and opportunities lie because of their understanding of the numbers. You guys have great technology knowledge. You need to go in as a commercial business person and be part of the decision-making process based on what you understand of the business and what you see the opportunities to be based on the technology you understand. Because I do not know how any business in the world today can make strategic decisions or business tactical decisions if your technology guy isn't in the room. Yeah. I mean, good God, you have HR in the room. No, no I won't get in that. That's unfair. <laughs> but, but traditionally, the tech guy in most companies has not been in the room. And, I mean, and, and that to me is crazy. Joking aside, your point is right, isn't it? You know, HR, the, the, one of the most important assets, they're responsible for one of the most yes. important assets in our business, our team, yes, our talent. exactly. As are the technologists. Exactly. That, and, and we should all be seen, as you say, as one team. It's, and we should be seen as equals. And, and for too long, I think IT is... As, has allowed itself to be treated as a service. And we all know if you allow yourself to be treated as that, you will be treated as that and you'll be kept out of the room. Yeah, We have to be in there. I have to have the right people. So you have to have credible people. They can't go in there and bleep and gurgle. They have to go in there having done their pre-read, having understood the business and be part of the business discussion. And I think one of the problems with a lot of IT departments and companies is we didn't necessarily hire people for those skills. Hmm. So learning now and taking time to learn is vital. So I say to my people, it's a plea of mine, would you just once a week, I want you to spend 10% of your time educating yourself. That might be about technology. That might be about what Unilever is doing. That might be about what BP is doing. That might be about what's going on in the market. That might, And of course, our rivals these days, uh, as I started off by saying, are not the other oil companies. No. It's Alibaba. It's Amazon. It's Tesla. It's GE. I mean, you name it. Yeah. Not to mention the million startups who just want to take away. Because if I know where the value is being created and my team does, sure as hell they do as well. Yeah. And they don't want the assets. They just want that bit that makes money. Just like the banks have faced now. For yeah, yeah. Sort yeah. Of years. And that 2% can, be, can, can mean everything, can not it? it? Can, well, on the margins that a downstream business operates on, absolutely, yeah. right? You know, I say once a week, don't switch on email the first time you come in. Because we know if you come into the office and switch on email, yeah. you're on this little hamster wheel, you run around for the rest of the day and you go, wow, I've answered 50 emails, I must have added value. <laughs> yeah, you probably didn't. But take that time, go have breakfast with some colleagues, go out with someone from the business, discuss something that matters, you know, something that, that, that you feel is a problem you've been struggling with. You know, once a week or once every couple of weeks in the offices we're at, we have Fill Up Friday, uh, where one of the grads um, orders in their favourite food for everybody, and you get three, 400 people congregate in an area, and we eat lunch together. The only rule is you're not allowed to take it back to your desk. Uh, to begin with, I thought, yeah, is this going to work? It's, yeah, it's a reasonable amount of money. But hell, people have conversations. And you hear people going, oh, you mean you've been struggling with that one? Hey, look, we've got this problem over here, I don't know, in our chemicals business where we're looking at... 
that's what I need. Because I truly believe back when I first started working, we all went to lunch together. We all went to the pub together because Shell had bars on premises, right? <laughs> we we all went and played sport together because we had big sports facilities. Yeah, yeah. You had other discussions. You actually knew each other a lot better. Mm. Now, what do people do? They come into the office. They start doing email, they stick on their headphones, and they go into meetings. It is Where's the interaction going? Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, I've got a friend who's uh, in your industry. I won't mention which company he's with. Um, but actually, many of your sectors, oil, FMCG, created that campus working in, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And it disappeared. And, of course, now everyone's sort yeah. of buzzing about Google and Amazon and their campus. It's not new. <laughs> no, I would agree. We actually had it first. But drive on shareholder return and Roarchi and you name it, a lot of those perks, and, of course, the taxation system, a lot of those perks went. Yeah. And I think getting back that sense of community um, really is something that matters a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and when we move back to the new Shell Centre offices here in London, we're trying to do some different, cleverer things to try and bring... Now, not everybody wants that. Some people like... You know, you have the introverts and the extroverts. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to cater to both. But I want to bring that interaction back because I think it drives innovation. It drives creativity. You know, you notice the IBM move of, uh, about a year or so ago said, we no longer really support home working. That's okay for efficiency and effectiveness. And I believe you probably can spend a day more efficiently and effective if you work at home and you're only on overseas calls or whatever. But I don't get the creativity and the innovation unless you're in an office with your team and we've created a buzz. Now, I'm not going to stand there like a headmaster and tick whether you came to the office. I want to create such an atmosphere where people, because we all have to work at home at times. It may be because we've got a call to Singapore in the morning, a call to, I don't know, California at night, or the dog's ill, or the kids are off yeah. school or whatever. But I want you to think, damn, I missed out today. I wasn't in the office. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that's a vital part of being a modern company. This is about beating startups who are all over this from a point of creativity, being together, huddling together, driving something. We we have to get that back. Yeah. I've got the people with the brains, but I've got to create the the environment for them. Yeah. And you talk about that commerciality and the language in the business. And of course, we've got AI, Internet of Things, all these yeah. amazing technologies yeah, yeah, coming yeah. in. They're going to impact supply chain and so much of downstream, therefore. How important, presumably those people are going to help this happen and the wider business, yes. I presume, is coming to you saying, Craig, what's IoT? What's AI? What's it going to do for my business? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of questions there. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think the business, I mean, you've got to remember now, most grads who uh, come into the business have had quite a lot of experience of IT albeit even just as users. So you are in a different world where IT is so all-pervasive in our lives that you're judged by somebody's iPhone or their iPad um, uh, or whatever device they yeah. may have. They look at that and go, well, Craig, do you, you know, your delivery isn't as good as this. You know, you know, you've got a green screen there with black characters. Or vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you've got to maximize that value of both our operations and of the way we market those services. And the technology is all over that. I, I, I mean, there's just so much going on. And I was thinking about some of it sort of last night, all the way from drones so we can fly over very large areas, for instance, in Australia and check out the assets without having to drive mm. there, which is also because we're hugely into safety as Shell, um, as are most big companies these days. Yeah, People driving thousands of miles is not a good thing. If I can fly a drone there and it's got enough intelligence to check the asset, make sure it's working, look yeah. for signs. and Yeah, that's great. I can fly them up over flare stacks in refineries. I don't have to send someone up there. I don't have to shut the thing down. I can go check that it's okay. So all the way from that to using machine learning and then AI on top of that, say, to look at how do we run blends of crudes into refineries? Yeah, because one of the big changes in downstream has been you can't work in silos. You're going to maximize that value you go across. And, of course, our systems were set up a little differently. So you go across. So how do I call the shots? How do I drive something through that value chain? We have so much data. How do I mine that data properly? How do I use it? I can make myself a lot more efficient. I can make myself a lot safer. I can do my preventive maintenance better. I can find out when things are going wrong before they do. And some of that's very interesting. You know, mm. we've got people looking at not just the data coming back, but the old adage that your guys worked on the plant for 40 years can walk past a machine and go, that doesn't sound right. 
well, actually, you can take an iPhone past it and look at its audio signature and go, you're right, that isn't right. Yeah. yeah. So you can sub, you can get his intelligence and use that. So I think the business disruption from the data and the opportunities we've got are huge. The business is more aware, and I don't want to be seen as a policeman. It, let's take data, democratization of data. I need to put the platform there to allow me to acquire, move, and put and, and store the data and then help the people in the business use that data for the outcome they want. You know, the technology is fabulous, but you can't lead with the tech. We have to stay ruthlessly focused on that business outcome. And then I'll bet 99 times out of 100, once you've thought of the business outcome you want, you'll go, hell, where's the data for that? Not, not do I need whatever, but where's the data? Can I acquire it, you know, move it, shift it? process it. So I think these wonderful technologies, and by the way, I hate the word digitalization. I think I've been doing that for 40 years. Sorry, guys. I didn't know I was doing analog 10 years ago. Um, it's an interesting hype word that I think gets a lot of boards of companies very excited. Yeah. But actually, so much of this is going on. Because as I said before, it's never been a lack of sort of imagination, really, on what we want to do. It was a lack of the tech to do it. Yeah. Now we're getting to that. I, I think getting my people excited is not the problem. Putting the money in the right place is. I think this is another great hype, a bit like um, when we turned everything into e-something in the early 2000s. A lot of companies spent and wasted a lot of money. Yeah. Now, okay, they got learnings out of it. The thing we have to learn to be in IT and the business to some extent is let's try it out. If it fails, kill it and move on. Yeah. If it works, brilliant. But that was probably a proof of concept, guys. You can't actually take that live, which is the next problem. Yeah. But we have to be able to embrace technology, move with it, put it out there, try it, and either go, yeah, fantastic, let's really go, or let's kill it, didn't work. I think the other thing is it doesn't matter, again, who you are. As a CIO, I have to spend a lot more time reading uh, learning, listening to podcasts, etc. Because if I go into John Abadad downstream director, he says, hey, hey, Craig, tell me a bit more how I could exploit blockchain. I can't sit there and go, oh, don't know much about that. I've got to at least have the 101 knowledge to say, well, you know what, John, we're already using it in counterfeiting. We're doing some work in um, uh, in trading with a consortium that we, uh, uh, that we announced in the press a few months yeah. ago, not to mention another other things where we're um, experimenting with it, to give him a flavor of it. And then when he says, well, that's interesting, I'd like you to go talk to so-and-so, and I can say, hey, that's great. I'll get my expert in to talk about it. Yeah. And indeed in Shell, we've, we've created a center of excellence, about 130, uh, between 150, 200 people, whose job it is to stay in touch with the latest startups, maybe suggest taking a stake in some of those st uh, startups as we did in Mana, mm. tell us, advise us, work on our behalf to look at disruptive technologies, where they're being used to disrupt other businesses and help us take some of those things, fast track them to um, proof of concept. Mm. They help us collaborate across upstream, downstream global functions, you know, our research labs. How do we keep that knowledge moving around? Because yeah. financial services is, is really focused in like, with Oliver Bussman and that on on blockchain, but yes. their complexities and their regulatory world so akin to, to what you have to live with, isn't it? So well, yes, it is. You, know, you think about, again, the scale of the downstream business and the amount of money that we move through our trading organization, the amount of money we just move through our businesses, yeah. and how Treasury has to work that across international boundaries. How do you put things on short-term deposit to maximize the value if you have a cash surplus there? Um, managing that and the number of third parties we have to do that and you think what blockchain could do, yeah, there's some there's some big opportunities yeah, there. Yeah, But of course, you've mentioned silos, you've, you've mentioned yeah. creating platforms, yeah. you have a legacy estate, uh, you're a major SAP user. How are you modernizing that? Because you, you can't just throw that yeah. stuff out and it's great stuff. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, sorry, what the actual, what the legacy part or have I? Uh, yeah, how are you, how are you sort of mo moving that, that SAP and all of those, yeah. those uh, well, some, I mean, some CIOs like to call them heritage, not legacy estates. Yeah, indeed. Forward. Yes, <laughs> yes. Heritage sounds better, doesn't it? Um, both from the people who work on it and, uh, <laughs> and people who supply it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, SAP clearly um, massive uh, supplier to Shell. If you look at my own estate in, downstream, I believe if I don't have the biggest, it's one of the biggest SAP implementations in the world. We we have one, it's called it's called uh, GSAP, Global SAP. That runs our downstream business. That's at the heart of it. Yeah. Um, that's for 45,000 users. Um, it has to run 24-7 because it's got to follow the sun. Um, and the guy I've got working that at the moment has done a tremendous job in the last two years. It was extremely expensive to run. He's got that down to around about 25% of what it used to cost. 
And also, not only is he doing big bundle releases every quarter, but he's doing releases every month and even every week. Actually, that's revolutionized Downstream's view of GSAP. Before, they said this would be the most expensive damn thing we've ever done. It took us about eight years to roll it out across the world. God knows how many gazillion dollars to do it. And it was seen as a sledgehammer to force standardization. In truth, we didn't get the full standardization across the globe we would have liked. It was just too difficult to do. But the system itself now is settled. It's working. It's running. It's doing the job. And it's surrounded by another couple of hundred apps because it was originally bought uh, built on 4.6 right? right so you're going back a long way yeah, it's yeah. been upgraded since obviously it's on ecc6 now we've said we are not yet ready to move to esfahana esfahana doesn't have the oily parts of the business we have to wait until sap can deliver in cloud on their premises solution which can run at the scale and uptime that we need and that isn't there yet. Now, I'm sure they will get there, but it's not there yet. Yeah. So I have, we we have, if you like, a simple mantra around that big system at the moment. It is shrink, simplify, sustain. It's way too complex. It's got way too much customization in it, way too many user exits in it. That we are looking to shrink. I want to simplify the way it runs. And actually, some of the many systems built around it, we can now bring into it because it has the functionality to do it. We just never did it. And sustain it, because I believe I've got to sustain it for the next four or five years. I cannot go to S for HANA until I have a business case to do so. And I think this is a problem many of my fellow CIOs I talk to are struggling with. Mm. They spent a lot of money putting it in. They've got it stable. It's doing the job. Again, an ROI now. Where does downstream want to put its money? They want to put it in the customer interface. They want to put it in mobility. They want to put it in, if you like, um, uh, clever data analytics. They want to put it in AI. They want to, all of those things. It's not about doing something with SAP. So we will wait until the right time to move. Now, I have other SAP systems for my chemicals business Mm -hmm. and and, uh, for my... um for my trading business, because trading runs on an enterprise trading risk management system. Uh, we uh, predominantly use a company called OpenLink, who uh, provides us with Endure. SAP is a small part of it, handles handles the chart of accounts, etc., handles the um, financial reconciliation. Those are good candidates to go to S4HANA first and give us an opportunity to try it out and make sure we understand it, we've got the right skills, build up those skills, before I would go near the uh, downstream SAP system. Yeah. Does that answer the question? It does, yeah. It's It's an interesting question for SAP as well, isn't it, who are trying to get more people to move to HANA uh, and have sort of tentatively put a date out there. And I I look at businesses of of your scale and think, that's unsustainable for those businesses. Yeah, I mean, we we obviously talk a lot with SAP, and we're part of you know their guiding coalitions yeah. or whatever that that are helping them work towards the next version. Um, I think they face a big challenge, mm. um, but I see you know I was with them yesterday in London, and they have a huge will and desire to get there um, uh, because they realise I think that that has to be the future, uh, both for their own survival in terms of uh, of a revenue generating enterprise and to stop me going elsewhere not that i see any real uh contender yeah. no i mean i'm a i yeah i'm the exec sponsor within shell for salesforce salesforce i think is a great product but of course they didn't have the legacy they came from a purpose yep. of saying i'm going to build it in the cloud just like uh, sap are trying to move to a service just are we i mean this is a phenomenon across the world how do we go from our traditional business model to a service model that gives us a, a recurring revenue stream as you said microsoft went that route many others have yeah. but it's a tough it's a tough change it is yeah and and you mentioned that that shrink simplify and sustain yeah. uh, and you mentioned salesforce is that something you're doing across an um, Across the whole estate, across all business units. Yeah, because I think um, when you, having got a lot more efficient and effective as IT, there's a limit to how much more I can do, I believe, without damaging the business. Yes, I can keep doing what I've been doing for the last four years and I will get more tens of millions out, but it will not be the hundreds of millions out I've got to date. Now, with the relationship I have with the business, with my people being on those leadership teams, I have to help the business simplify its processes. So you go back to our heritage of hundreds of companies or, or 78, 80 um, countries we're in just just for retail. You know, we're off, we operate in 900 airports around the world. You know, all of these things have got a complexity at the local level where we have too many pricing systems, too many loyalty schemes, et cetera, et cetera. I have the ability to simplify those, but there is a cost to obtain. But if I could do it, 
I can start taking out more cost. Because if you think about it, IT's cost is really driven by four things. The number of people I have to support, the number of locations, physical places, the number of projects I run, but then it's really my portfolio. How many things am I running? And that tends to be driven by the complexity of the business. So if Poland insists on having its own loyalty scheme because it doesn't like the one that runs in Germany because it doesn't do quite what they want, sorry, you've got to compromise or you've got to understand the cost of doing that. So I think the next big drive now, I don't think the next big drive is, along with the business, is how do we further reduce the operating cost of downstream? I mean, they've come down 20% or so in the past five years. They would like to make another step because downstream is growing. It's growing rapidly. But you've got to be able to afford to grow. There is another step I believe we can take, which will allow us to further reduce the cost of the business operation, which will bring my cost down as well, which will allow us to put the smart money where we want to put it to really grow the business in the areas and parts of the world that we wish to do that. So it's an exciting time yeah, uh, and, a, and a different type of challenge. And presumably your, your supplier landscape is changing. Oh, yes. You simplify, but you're north. You, you yeah, I mean, more. I think the supplier landscape is is actually quite fascinating. You know, I see our role of my senior people changing. I think we have to be strategic leaders, both with the suppliers and internally. So I would say this to both. We have to be orchestrators and challengers. We need to challenge the business, challenge the suppliers, but then orchestrate the bringing together of the services and the products we need to deliver that business outcome. And the third one is we have to be agents of change. And those three, again, are not typical IT people skills. But If you think about it now, the big players that I've traditionally used, the the big uh, consultancies, they have to get smarter. I don't think many CIOs are now really buying um, time and materials people. Um, In the case of Shell, as you may know, we've gone to four hubs. We've built our captive or we are building a captive hub in uh, Bangalore, uh, which has grown almost at 100 people a month for the past um, couple of years. So that's we're seeing as a great success. We're bringing the skills back in-house. We gave too much away. The big players now, so if I look at the big players first, I'm saying to them, you have to come to me with a value proposition. You have to come to me with something that, because I sit here and explain to you the challenges the business faces. With all your skills and knowledge of what's going on and your ecosystems that you have and and research you do with a lot of the startups or other players, bring me a solution. Tell me how you would solve this problem of, say, the site of the future or combining uh, domestic energy suppliers with people who are out there on the road, right? How would you do that? And with those little players, I have to learn to work in a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah, from my procurement department to the way I work with them, I often say to startups, be careful of us. We could kill you. You know, we don't mean to, but if you get so obsessed with getting shell on your marketing blurb, we may distract you from your core purpose. And I really don't want that to happen to you. You have to also stand up to us and go, actually, Shell, we don't want that, right? This is what we do, not that. You don't need us for this. So if you think about how you bring it together, if you think about a connected car working uh, with many of the automakers that we work with, it's understanding why they would want to work with us and why we would want to work. And sometimes we're surprised. They say, well, actually, we would like Shell to work with us for these reasons. I don't really want to say why, but for these reasons, (laughs) right? And we go, hell, we didn't think of that. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Right. Everything now is about an ecosystem. It is, yeah. And that's another challenge to the way we have to work. Craig, you just mentioned there about ecosystems. Yeah. Many of your peers have therefore sort of refocused their their teams to be very product-oriented, yes. understanding the, yes. the products in the business. Have you had to do that? And, and how have you driven that change? We, we are on that journey. I think if you look at the way the business is now operating, everything gets constrained by this things have to be a project and things have to follow an annual budgeting cycle, uh, which I think is patently in this day and age nonsense. Fine, there's certain fiscal things we have to do good. Taking people in the business, making them the product owner, building the agile team uh, around them that's incredibly focused on the business outcome. So again, you get a much better linkage to what is the business really trying to achieve. People bring more of their brain to the table. This isn't about the technology. This is about the outcome we're trying to get. We are moving that way. Interestingly, our build of Bangalore has helped because people are coming into Bangalore, particularly the people who are coming from service industries, who have a different way of looking at things. So Shell, classic big company, as I imagine others you've talked to, very organisationally aligned, very um, structurally aware. And people are not so happy about moving across boundaries. Yeah, in fact, I joined Shell in 1981, as I said, but I I resigned in uh, 98. 
uh, after 17 years and went to KPMG for six years, which I now tell people is the best training course she'll ever let me go on, right? But, and I do mean that. A fabulous company. I learned so much. But you very quickly, when I got there, I realized organizational boundaries don't work. Client wants this. Go find the best people either on the bench or you think you need to pluck from somewhere else to do that job. Put them together. Go do the job. Nobody cared about where they came from. This was about delivering to the client. Mm. In Bangalore, I, we kind of call it natural teams. People just form a natural team around the product or the problem or the issue or the opportunity there is, and they go work it. So Agile and DevOps is kind of taking off there without me trying, whereas I think in other parts of my organization, I have to push and shove and say, hey, come on. There's a, there is a different way of working. Now, we are structurally aligned, as I said earlier, down, um, uh, down the lines of business. So we are working a certain way, but that is changing, and it has to change. And earlier, I think I, I cut you off accidentally, is you mentioned the four hubs. Is that part of that, and what are those four hubs? Sorry, right. So, again, when I took over, I had people in 38 countries around the world. Um, and that, again, was part, of, was, was part of the legacy. Yeah, That was not a sustainable situation, both from a um, just a time, you know, a time difference piece, um, from people's careers. How could I offer three people in Italy a career? I mean, that, that, that wasn't going to happen. They, and we were... We'd brought talented people into The Hague or London or, or indeed um, Houston. They did well. They got promoted. Then they could never go back because there wasn't a job at that grade left in their country. So we were getting in a bit of a mix. So we mm. said, OK, we have to draw a line under this and we have to say, what are the four places in the world we, we want to drive IT out of? And we decided very specifically Houston, London, downstream has always been headquartered there. Yeah. The headquarters of the company is The Hague, but actually we have people in Amsterdam Rise Vikan the Hague, um, and but we call that one hub. And then we looked around the world and said, so where else? If we really think about this, where can we get the talent we need to do this? And we weren't necessarily looking for a cost play. We were looking for talent. After much soul searching in 2015, we decided on Bangalore. So we said, those are our four hubs. Now, do I have people in what I would call business proximate locations where I have big asset? Yes, I do. Or where I have big market entry. Mm -hmm. So China, uh, Singapore, um, Germany, because I have you know, massive uh, refinery and other businesses there. So there are places where I still have people through, through uh, necessity of being close to the business. Yeah. But that's where my main people sit. In upstream, of course, they have even more people out at the asset. Because if you're in Oman, Nigeria... Clearly, you have to have big IT presence on the ground, yeah, yeah uh, sort of Far East, Australia. But for me, it's easier to go to those four hubs. Now, Bangalore, we set out with zero people in 2015. We are at several thousand now, of which I'm the biggest set of people there. And that has allowed us to concentrate on a newer operating model. And Bangalore is not an offshore center. It's not somewhere I throw work. Mm. They, they have the same pyramid and hierarchy as we do anywhere else. So in essence, whilst they are the biggest, if I add up all my other hubs, they are bigger than the other three, I actually don't want to treat them as this offshore center. You know, I can imagine maybe, maybe not my successor, but my successor's successor is in is in Bangalore. Mm. You know, downstream's business is growing in India. Yeah. Do I need to be in London? Actually, would it be more sensible for me to be there? Um, on the other hand, I don't want to shellize them too much. I mean, we have a fantastic brand image there because of Burma Shell. They love the way Shell has a strong respect for people, a strong, we call it uh, goal zero. We don't want anybody to ever have any harm whilst working for Shell. We want you to go home to your family safe every night mm. from holding the handrail in, in an office, which we will intervene if you do not. Because I think if you don't start with that simple thing, if you can't intervene and say to somebody, hey, why are you running down the stairs with a PC under one lap and your lunch in the other? Hey, take care, hold the handrail. You can get killed on the stairs as easily. Yeah, as a rig. <laughs> as a rig. Yeah. So we want it to be a safe in either environment. It's a big thing to us. People are coming to work for us. We, we, we have a fairly low turnover rate there because A, there's the brand image and people like the environment we give them, our focus on DNI, our focus on, on just all aspects of, uh, of uh, diversity, not just gender, our focus on safety and this strong respect for people we have. That's working well for us. And it's interesting so, you, you, you mentioned Mangalore was not a cost argument and, and you're, no, not, you're mean, not the only sure. CIO who's, who's ever said that to me. Well, it is a talent case now. Yeah, I mean, yes, of course the costs are lower, but if you're in there for the long term, you know the costs will rise yeah. and the competition for talent is there, right? So there is a cost part to this and that is fabulous and that's a big tick in the box. But I also want people to travel 
because I want actually to learn from them. What I don't want to do is shellize them. Yeah. I don't want them to become the corporate mold. You know, I sometimes think of shell as a large red and yellow jelly. You can smack it as hard as you want, it'll wobble around, but if you're not careful, it'll go back to the same shape. Here I have a real opportunity to disrupt myself, and I want to disrupt the way I'm working. I want to bring in people with fresh ideas, of new ideas, who will help us evolve into a modern whatever IT will be in five years down the road. Will CIOs exist? Will we just be part of the business? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but I think, you know, the modern CIO has got to stand up and be counted and has got to has got to make decisions, has got to challenge the business, has got to stand up for what we believe in. Craig Walker, thank you for joining the Horizon CIO podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please do rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. Each week, there is a CIO news and insight on the Horizon businessinnovation.com website. Also, a full article from this discussion will be published. Thank you for listening.